right, you guys can turn around and grab your Bibles, all you children who are five years of age and under can go to your class. That includes a couple of mine. And uh, the rest of you, open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, for those of you who are uh, new with us, what we do is we preach straight through books of the Bible. So we've been in the book of Matthew for um, going on three years now, just walking through it chunk by chunk and just kind of learning God's Word as He revealed it to us. And so we're in Matthew chapter 10. Um, all the previous sermons up to this point are on our website, and so you can go and check, check up on that if you'd like. But we're going to be looking at verses uh, 16 through 25 over the next uh, few weeks Today we're going to be looking at 16 through 20, uh, through verse 20. But I want to read 16 through 25 just to get a good idea of the, the context of the passage here. So Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Remember, Jesus is talking to His disciples. He's about to send them out on their first mission. And He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reading of Your Word and we pray that You will bless the reading of Your Word. We ask that You would give us ears to hear what Your Spirit would say to us. Give us eyes to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage. Give us hearts to receive this. Lord, comfort us through Your Word. Give us boldness to share our faith because of what we read in Your Word today. And, and please, we ask that You would give us fruit for our labors as we seek to spread the Gospel and expand Your Kingdom. Father, we pray for those around the world who are on this mission in places where people are violently and physically persecuted. Missionaries, our brothers and sisters who have left their families and their homes and have have gone to share the gospel amongst peoples who don't know who you are. God, I think of the Tantai people of Nepal who have 
a little bit of the New Testament. There are a few professed believers among them, but for the most part they are um, unopened to the Gospel. God raised up missionaries to go to those people. Strengthen the believers who are there in their faith. God, I pray specifically today for the causes, Philip and Audrey, who, who used to be missionaries under our support, but who are now transitioning back into the everyday life of a, of a Christian husband and wife, and, and they prepare for a child on the way, and they're trying to, to find their place in uh, regular, everyday uh, Christian life. Help them to, to find comfort through Your Word. Help them to find joy in simple obedience. God, again, strengthen us through Your Word. Prepare us and our church for what the future holds. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So like I said, we're in the disciples' discourse. And if I can't, I can take it off if that's going to be a problem. Okay, let's do that. I'll just do this. I'll talk loud. Um, before we get into this passage, I want to read to you two other very popular passages of Scripture. Um, the first one's in the book of John, and you don't have to turn there, it'll be up on the screen. Um, but I think this is important for us to understand here. The book of John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking. And in verse 11, He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then again in Psalm 23, I want to read this again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we look at these passages, and, and, and you'll see in a minute why, why I began with these passages, Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down His life for the sheep. That's us, his, his people. We can never, we must never lose sight of that. No matter what happens to us, we cannot forget. We cannot question or second guess the truth that Jesus said He is the Good Shepherd. He never abandons His sheep. He never slacks off in His duties as a shepherd. He never gets caught up in his own affairs and doesn't realize that his sheep are wandering off. 
Never. He is the good shepherd. Because he is our shepherd, we will never be without or without our needs. We, we shall not want. We will never be without our needs as he defines them, not as we define them. He tells us what we need. He makes us lie down in green pastures. I've said this before. Sheep are really, really um, finicky, nervous, timid animals. If there are bugs around them, or strange noises, or too much movement, they won't lay down. Jesus is the good shepherd who comforts His people and He makes us to lie down. He takes away worries and gives us rest. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He gives us the choicest nourishment for our souls. He protects us with His rod and His staff. He protects us and He disciplines us when we need it because He is the good shepherd. If you don't know Christ in that way, as the Good Shepherd, then this passage that we're starting today and we'll be walking through for the next few weeks is going to be really scary and it's going to sound harsh and strange. For those of you who do know Christ as the Good Shepherd, this passage will push you into Him closer and you will slide over closer to your shepherd. You will remember again that I cannot let my shepherd out of my sight. Because I must be close to my shepherd. If you are a Christian, perhaps you still find uh, problems. You, you, you battle unbelief and you, you have a hard time finding this type of peace and rest in Christ alone. And, and so of course the hope today is that this passage will drive you to search Him out in His Word by faith. Behold the glory of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Now this passage that we're talking about, 16 through 25 specifically, is where this prophecy telescopes out. And you remember I told you how a lot of times in Scripture there is a prophecy. And it's as if the prophet wrote what he saw, and what he saw was kind of like a skyline of a city. And it was just a two-dimensional line. But if we were to raise above the city and look out over the top of the skyline, we would realize that there are some buildings that are a lot farther back in the skyline, and they're actually really tall, but because we're looking straight forward, they're all the same. And so at this point, we're kind of rising above the original wording, and we're seeing that what he is saying extends beyond this original sending of the disciples and into the future. And you can look at verse 18. It says, You will bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Well, earlier he said, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. So we know that what's happening is he's talking about beyond this original mission to just the Jewish people. Now, again, what else helps us here is that there's no record of any of the things that happened or that are described in this passage. There's no record of them happening before the ascension of Jesus. Before that point, they were mostly ministering to Jewish people. They were not being dragged before governors and kings. They were not being killed all of that happened after the ascension, even more specifically after uh, Pentecost and the, the stoning of Stephen after that. So right now we're looking beyond this original mission, and this comes down through the ages to us, to all disciples who would follow Jesus, learn of Him, and then be sent out from Jesus um, into his, or on His mission. So look at the passage again. Verse 16. 
This is the theme of this following section. He begins to unpack the reality of this mission that they're about to be sent on and how they should act in response. He says, behold, or, or listen up, pay attention. Why would he say that? Well, we can imagine that in verses 13 through 15, he said, you're going to go and you're going to preach. Some people will listen, some people will not listen. And so they may be thinking, okay, we've got this. We're going to Jewish people. We're Jews. We'll go to Jews. We're going to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Some will listen, some will not. Worst case scenario, we're dusting sand off of our sandals and going to the next town. Jesus says, hey, listen up. That's not the worst that can happen. It's going to get worse. This is worst case scenario He begins to unpack for them. Behold, I am sending you out. I am is emphatic. The, the emphasis on, is on who is sending. It is Jesus. He is in control. He is dictating this sending. And this is why I opened today the way that I did. Because when we read this and we hear that Jesus is sending out His own disciples as sheep in the midst of wolves, we would think, what kind of a shepherd in their right mind would do that? And and the emphasis is on Him. I'm the one sending you. It is me. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. When He says He's sending them out, this is familiar because we go back to the beginning of chapter 10 and we talked about the idea that these men were first disciples and then they were sent out as apostles. The word sending you out is apostello. That's where we get the word apostle. They are being sent with a message. And we've, we've known this. These men were being trained to be sent out. So, I'm sending you out. And then He gives them a word picture to help them understand the gravity of their being sent. This is not just a give it a good try, go for it. This, there's, there's a lot of weight in, in this original mention. So He says, in, in, in essence, this is what it's going to be like. I'm sending you and it's going to be like this. I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. He uses a comparison, a simile, as, like. He's just comparing His disciples to sheep. He, the shepherd of the sheep, whose job is to comfort them and care for them and watch for them and guide for them and and provide for them, He is sending them out in the midst of sheep. Or in the midst of wolves. In in the the middle of of a pack of wolves, He said. Sheep, helpless defenseless, dependent animals sent out into the middle of wolves, violent, ravenous, predators. And Jesus has His own intentions and purposes in all of this. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He knows full well everything that the future holds for these men. So it's in essence, He's saying, I'm sending you out into a situation that on the surface seems absolutely bleak and hopeless. I am sending you out like a group of defenseless, fuzzy animals into the middle of violent predators. That's that's what he just said. And and I hope you're seeing why I opened the way I did because some people would read this and think, what kind of a shepherd would do this? We keep in our minds, first and foremost, the character of God in Christ is He is a good shepherd. That never changes. So whatever comes next must fit under that category of He's still good. Whatever He does, He's he's still good. So, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, therefore, in light of the fact that I'm doing this, be 
wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I'm sending you out intentionally. I'm sending you out with purpose into a seemingly helpless situation. So here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to be wise as serpents. The word wise here is not necessarily godly wisdom. It's more of a a practical wisdom. Wisdom that you would use in your everyday life. We might call this street smarts. And we all know people who we've said, you know, well, they've got book smarts, but they don't really got street smarts. This is street smarts. This is just how to function in everyday life. Common sense, we may call it. So be wise as serpents, snakes. If you know anything about snakes, some of you women are getting, you know, cold chills just thinking about it. If you know anything about snakes, you know that they are naturally endowed with this type of cunning where they, they are there and they're gone. And most of the time, we might not even know it. They're, they're, they're quiet. They slither in. They blend in. They, they, there's, they move with little to no hesitation compared to a, a squirrel in the road. You know, they, they get out there and they can't make up their minds. Snakes don't do that. They, they're just cunning. They're provided naturally with everything they need to to navigate in every situation. They're, they're quiet. They have a heightened sense of, of uh, hearing. They sense vibrations to the ground. In other words, they know you're there a long time before you know they are near. Snakes have everything that they need to maintain their existence. And Jesus says you should be the same. His disciples should be the same. That is, be wise. Think clearly. Notice your surroundings. Be discerning. Just use practical thinking. Don't be foolish as you go out. Don't let the emotions of a situation cloud your judgment or render you foolish or or slow or hesitant. Be wise as serpents. But also, he says, and innocent as doves. The word innocent means pure or unmixed, undefiled. Separated out, undefiled from evil. It would be used of wine that was unmixed with water. So, and, and then the dove was just a symbol of this type of purity. So, put this together. A snake's cunning works so well that in fact, a lot of snakes, you don't see them. I caught a snake Friday or yesterday, Friday, a green snake, that if, I, if he wouldn't have moved, I would have never known he was there because he blended right in with the bushes and the grass When we let him go, it was kind of hard to keep up with him because he blended right in because snakes have this cunning about them that they almost disappear. So to remain innocent and pure, undefiled, separated out, means that we're going to be wise and we're going to be discerning in the world, but we cannot be so you use so much cunning and wisdom that we just blend right in. Because we must always be separated out and stand out and be different, be undefiled from the world. We have to remain pure and unmixed. Some of you have seen um, different animals that blend into their surroundings. We're not that. We will be wise. We'll be smart about where we go and what we say and what we do and how we say it and how we do it. And we will know our culture and not say ridiculous things that have has nothing to do with the people we're talking to and associating with. But... We don't go so far as to look no different than them. We are to stand out. We're Christians. We're called out, separated. We are the the church, the ecclesia, the called out gathering from the world. And so the idea here is that we have to maintain our distinction, keep ourselves undefiled while at the same time being wise about where we are. Uh, A couple more 
verses that kind of unpack this idea. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Another one, Romans chapter 16 verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. This is the same idea here that you're going to be in the world and you need to know how to function there. But not so much into the world that you just blend in and you don't stand out. In other words, know nothing of evil except only that which you need to know to stay away from it. Again, we use a, a picture from nature. Poison oak. I want to know what poison oak looks like. I want to be acquainted with poison oak to that extent so that I can stay away from it. I don't want to be so acquainted with it that I know what it tastes like, feels like on my skin, smells like. I don't care to be that close. I just want to know just enough to know how to stay away from it. That's the idea here. Again, Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in, listen, the, the, the language here, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we're, we're in the midst of this generation. We're among them, but we have to be blameless and innocent. We have to shine as lights out of that generation. We'll be there, but we're not going to so blend in that we don't stand out. Now, why is this important? Because what he's about to explain to them is, is in essence, times are going to get tough. This is going to be really hard. And when times get tough, our, usually our first reaction is to separate ourselves from whatever it is that makes us a target. In which case, when we separate ourselves from that, we just blend into society. We're no longer a target because we just look like everybody else. And so he's saying, you're going to be in the world, but you don't blend in. You remain separate. You remain undefiled. Wisdom is easy, and, and you read books on church growth and, and how, to, how to minister, and there are, there are a dime a dozen on getting to know your culture. And that's smart. We need to know where we are and what we're doing and, and how the people of Taylorsville think and act and what's important to them and what's not important to them. But we don't want to go so far as to be no different than lost people. We're to be separate, undefiled. Like I said, considering this, this description of what's going to happen to these disciples and, and future generations of Christians, our first reaction is usually not going to be one that's completely untainted with sin. We want to stand up and defend ourselves, fight for ourselves. And Jesus says, no, you are to remain separate. You don't live like the world. You don't act in sin. And it takes grace and a transformed heart to respond first in innocence and purity than it does to just say, well, well, who do you think you are coming at me? You, don't, you can't judge me. We, we act first and foremost with grace and love and patience, humbling ourselves. Now this is the general theme of this section, verse, 20, verse 16. The general theme. He's sending these men out into a situation that by all accounts looks hopeless. So in light of that, he's saying you need to be prepared to act wise. Know your surroundings. Be prepared to, to, to make quick movements. Think smart, but at the same time, remain separate. Remain undefiled. Remain free of sin. 
And our situation today isn't a whole lot different. We have to be prepared for a lot of the same things. Now, our persecution isn't as harsh as what he describes here yet, but it may come to that point. And so we need to heed these these warnings. And verse 17 begins the first of the warnings. Verses 17 and 18, he begins to describe things to look out for. Things to be warned of. You'll notice that this is in direct opposition to any type of... uh, prosperity theology. He doesn't say, uh, beware of men because they're going to try to bless you and give you money and you're going to have health and wealth. He doesn't say that. He says, beware of men because they're going to deliver you over to courts and flog you. Your families are going to kill you. The government's going to be after you. Beware of men, he says. Now, look out when he says beware. That's, that's look out. Pay careful attention of men. Now, some of us think immediately, wait, hold on a second. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You're exactly right. Our war is not against flesh and blood. But the, the, the men of the world, the world, their war will be against us. They are against us. They're coming after us. We're not warring with them. Our war is a, a spiritual war. And this is a part of being wise as serpents. Beware. Watch out. Like a snake. Know who's around you and what's going on. He says... Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. That word, word is sunedrion, where we get the word Sanhedrin. This was the, the Jewish high court of the day. A supreme court that consisted of um, high priests, past and present, high priests, family members, um, Jewish elders, um, and scribes and Pharisees. Seventy men would get together, and they were like the supreme court in all matters of justice that concerned the Jewish people and the Mosaic law. Now, if the Roman government determined that it was proper for them to intervene into that court, they could because they were over the Jews. But for the most part, they just let the Jews handle their own stuff, and they stayed out of it. So when Jesus says, "You will be," they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Again, that's a Jewish house of worship. He's talking about persecution from religious people. This is not just anybody. These are religious people who claim to worship the same God you do. He says they will flog you in their synagogues. You in their synagogues. You are not like them. There is a separation between believers in Christ and and those who are still engulfed in the apostate uh, religious system of the of Judaism. So this is religious persecution. This is religious people persecuting religious people. That's us. So we would ask, how could religious people persecute other religious people? And in our, our culture, that question becomes the answer becomes more and more obvious. Um, in John 16, Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. People will kill Christians and think that they're doing a good job. They will think that they are honoring God just as much as we think we're honoring God when we share the gospel. And he gives, the, he gives the problem right here in the verse. They don't know the Father. They don't know God. They have invented in their minds a concept of God that is not true to Scripture. If they knew God, they would accept the messengers of His Son. They would recognize His Son, but these men don't know the Father. 
Now this happened uh, specifically in the early days of Christianity when uh, the Jews persecuted Christians. Now that doesn't happen much anymore, but in the early days of Christianity it did. You remember the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he was converted. Saul, he was a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. And he persecuted Christians or what they called those of the way. Jewish religious people persecuting Christians. Now, because of the Jewish apostasy, they no longer believe in the true God. They are engulfed in religious tradition. They do not know Jesus Christ who God has sent, and so they didn't receive Jesus. They didn't receive the messengers of Jesus, His disciples. And so, if you've got that mindset, anybody who comes in and seems to uh, support a different Messiah than you believe in, you're going to think, hey, I've got to get rid of them. That's blasphemy against my God. They will see killing Christians, persecuting Christians as honoring God. And this still happens today. Misunderstandings about who God is leads many liberal uh, people who profess to be Christians to oppose other Christians who would stand up on issues like abortion or homosexuality. We take a biblical stand and they say, whoa, 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 you're being, you're being judgmental. You're being a bigot. That's not my God. My God is love. Keep reading. He's more. He's, he's loving. He's just. He hates sin. He must deal with sin. He's, he's, he's so much more, but because they settle on one attribute of God and forget all of who God is, they have created their own false God who doesn't exist. And so... In that mindset, they saying, well, we've got to get rid of these, quote, narrow-minded Christians who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You, surely you don't trust every word of this. You don't take this really seriously, do you? You're just, you're just hateful and mean. And so they will think they're honoring God by getting rid of people who believe the Bible. Verse 18. This is persecution by the secular government. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Governors and kings, that's just different ranks of, of secular government. Governors and then kings, of course, being the highest level. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. This is why we will be dragged before these secular government officials for the sake of Christ, for the purpose of Christ, in the interest of Christ, we will come in the name of Jesus and they will say, because you are under the name of Jesus and you carry the name of Jesus, you're going with us. Because Jesus, as we've seen over the past several weeks, He's the leader, the caller, the equipper, the sender of His own disciples. So the message that we go out with is a message that centers around Jesus. It is a Christ centered message and focusing even more centrally on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We go out with that gospel message that is central to Christianity in the name of Jesus and we will be dragged before governors and kings, different ranks of secular government leadership. Notice we will not be dragged before secular governments for telling people that they have a purpose. We will not be dragged before secular governments for telling people, God loves you. We will not be dragged before secular governments yet for inviting people to church. Yet. In some countries that does happen. But here, that's not yet. 
All of those things are good. They are true. But that's not the gospel. That's not coming in the name of Jesus. It will be for the sake of Christ and His gospel that we are dragged before secular governments. And the next detail, the reason we are being dragged, it says, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And this is our job. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will testify Jesus is saying to these disciples of what you've seen and heard. You will bear witness. They're going to drag you before the government and they're going to say, go ahead, tell them what you said you saw. And these disciples would say, you can read their sermons in the book of Acts. This man, Jesus, whom you crucified, has risen from the dead and He commands all people everywhere to repent and trust in Him. That's to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And of course, this reference to the Gentiles, again, is a, is a little hint that, that this gospel message is going to go beyond Israel. It's going to extend down to the ages. And Christians will gather in Taylorsville, North Carolina and worship this same Jesus. So that's the first warning. Then verses 19 and 20, there's a preparation for and, and a response. Here's how you're going to act. Verse 19, when they deliver you over... Not if. There, there is certainty here. There, there's no questioning as to whether or not this will happen. Verse 17 says, they will deliver you. Verse 18, you will be dragged. Verse 19, when they deliver you. It will happen, Jesus says. This is not in certain situations it's going to happen. He says, it will take place. So He says, when that happens, when they deliver you over... Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. We'll stop and think about that. This is, this is what we do. We can all go back, especially us guys. We all go back to elementary school. You get in trouble. They take me to the principal's office. And what are you doing on the way there? You're thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? How am I going to get out of this one? Or, or you don't know why you're going. You just go ahead and assume that you're in trouble. And so you're thinking, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to get out of this? What, what can I say to let them know that I'm no threat or, or to clear my name or to get out from under this? Jesus says, when this time comes, don't even worry about it. Don't even think about what you are to say. Don't be anxious. Just go. For, he says, the reason is because what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. When, I, when, we, when you read that, it seems like the script has already been written. And we're going to get there and the Holy Spirit's just going to slide it over into our hearts and say, speak. It will happen. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. In that hour, in that moment, at the very second your mouth opens and you have to give a defense and you have to be a witness, then it will come. But up until that point, don't worry about it. Now, that, this does not mean don't study the Bible. Don't learn anything. Just go ignorantly into every situation. No, that means you study what the Holy Spirit has said through His Word and He will bring this stuff to your memory when the time comes. Verse 20 spells that out. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. It's not you. It's not us. Jesus says it's not going to be you speaking. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It is God Himself who will speak through you in that moment. And if history has shown us anything, it is this fact right here. You can read the sermons in the book of Acts. You can pick up Fox's book of martyrs. 
And you can read over and over and over. When Christians stand trial, when Christians are tied to the stake, and they have to say, or give a defense, or get one last opportunity to speak, in every single situation, the, the, the evidence is this overwhelming, supernatural boldness and joy to proclaim the gospel every time. You read these stories, and, and when I read this stuff, I've told some of you, I wonder that if in that moment there comes a peace upon a Christian, a supernatural peace that is not affected by even physical pain. You read the stories of Christians being burned alive and they're singing hymns and they're smiling or they're laid out on a gridiron to be fried like a piece of bacon and they lay down and close their eyes as if they're taking a nap. It's Holy Spirit power in that moment. When we think about it right now, it terrifies us to death. But in that moment, Holy Spirit power comes in and He says, you don't worry about what you're going to say. The help will be there. We have... No worries. Now I want to stop there for this week. And I want to circle back to the beginning. Jesus is our good shepherd. If Jesus is so good, why would He not just make it to where we don't have to go through this? We know all things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to His purpose. So there's some good here. Again, good as God defines it, not good as we define it. There is some good here, and so I want to give you just four reasons why these disciples, why us as disciples, why we must be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. First, sanctification. We must be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves for the purpose of sanctification, which is the process by which we are made to look like Christ. Listen to this from James chapter 1. And most of you know this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials of various kinds. Not just physical persecution, but including these types of persecutions, any type of trial, is a test of your faith. And when you make it through that test, you're strengthened. It produces steadfastness. And you're stronger for the next test. And the next test. And you get stronger and stronger. And when that steadfastness has its full effect, you will be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. You will be like Christ. And so, every trial that you go through in life, whether it's Violent, physical persecution, if that comes to our country, which it may, they all produce in us steadfastness. Maybe you're going through little trials right now that are really pretty simple compared to what the rest of the world is experiencing. But it's building your steadfastness until maybe the point comes when what the world is seeing is what America sees and, and then your strength is, or your faith is so strong, you're bold in your faith. And He, he, he works this in us. Even if the final persecution is the persecution where you're the one tied to the stake or your head is in the, the stocks and the, the, the very next moment that you experience is presence of Christ in His presence, sanctification process is done. 
You have been made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. With Christ, the work will be over. So we go through this for sanctification. We must be moved along this process. And sometimes He has to kick us in the, in, in the rear end to get us going. And sometimes that means here, go through a trial. He'll shove us out there as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then when His Spirit takes over us, He strengthens us to make it through that. Secondly, second reason, disciples of Christ must be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves is to give boldness to other Christians. Listen to the book, or this from the book of Acts, chapter 8. In chapter 7, Stephen has just been stoned, the first Christian martyr of the New Testament church. And then chapter 8 picks up, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. Notice this language. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Sounds just like what we're reading about Matthew. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. The apostles stayed. Christians were scattered. Did they run and hide? No, they went to preach. They saw the persecution. They, they, they heard Stephen has been martyred. And you're not going to believe how he took it. He stood up and he was, it looked like he was looking into heaven and, and he just he asked God to forgive them and then he just closed his eyes and went to sleep. And they, and they realized this Holy Spirit power is real. And they scatter and they begin to preach. Now again, this is hard for us to imagine because we haven't been there yet. But just imagine that you see other Christians boldly standing for their faith, proclaiming the gospel, joyfully giving their lives to Christ. You, too, would be compelled to do the same. The fear dwindles when you realize that this power is real in us. And this is the fruit of the persecution of Christians around the world. I talk about China all the time. The, the, the secret house church in China is exploding in incalculable numbers. Millions of Christians in a place where it is illegal to be a Christian. It's just going, going, going. They're constantly being converted because this persecution strengthens the church. And I, I would wonder if the fact that we have it so easy in America is not a type of judgment on us. The, the church here is, is becoming a place where other countries are sending missionaries to us while other, the church in other nations is exploding. So this gives boldness to other Christians and the church. Third reason that Christians must be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. To prove your salvation. I did not say earn your salvation. I said prove your salvation. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that's going to look different, again, in different places in the world, in different times in history. But if you've never experienced any type of persecution, exclusion, never been marginalized or maligned or anything, either your testimony, you're not talking loud enough, or perhaps you don't desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And, and that's not the same as just being a good moral person. 
moral people, they're everywhere. The world recognizes and accepts morality. That's different than living a godly life in Christ Jesus. And persecution is one of the best evidences you've been truly born again. That the Holy Spirit is, is working out your salvation out from the inside and producing fruit. And the world sees that. And they hear your testimony and they hate it. And you will be persecuted for that. Because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then the last one, and this is the most important reason that all Christians must be thrust out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And it is to make us trust God. To make us trust God. You say, I trust God. No, we all have progress we need to make in belief, in trusting in God. In the current passage, verse 20, is the Holy is the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We just have to trust God that in that moment that will happen. Another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This type of persecution, these types of trials, push us into God, into our shepherd, and make us trust Him. The greatest good, we, we, we say this all the time, we've got it on our coffee cups, on t-shirts, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God. The greatest good that God can ever do for you is to drive you to Himself by all means necessary. Get you to press into Him. We throw it out all the time. God is love. God is love. God is love. The greatest love God can show you is to give of Himself to you and specifically in a time of need. That is the love of God. He gives of Himself to others. And when we learn to trust fully in God, rest in God, we will then live lives that are the most joyful to us and the most honoring to Him. Or John Piper would say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. In Him. Satisfied in Him. Not knowledge, not prestige, not status, not being prepared to, to, to say. It's just Him. Resting in God. And the reason we are satisfied in that, we are the most satisfied in that, is because we were created for the purpose of glorifying God. That is your sole purpose on this planet, in this life, is to glorify God. And so when we do that, when we fulfill the purpose for which we were created, it's joyful and satisfying. The problem is, we don't do that. We don't glory in God. We don't rest in God. We are all sinners, which means we fall short of glorifying God. God's up here and we could glorify Him, but we would rather shoot short and, and miss the mark and, and glorify ourselves or glorify another person or glorify anything under the sun other than Him. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's called sin. And God hates sin. And God hates anyone or anything that would seek to steal His glory. And because of that sin, we are alienated from God. He can't have a relationship with that sin. With that in our lives, He cannot approach that. And it cannot approach Him. But 
He sent His Son into the world, lived perfect life, died on the cross, taking the wrath of God against sin and sinners on Himself, forgiving us of our sins that we had previously committed and will always commit until He comes back. He reconciles us back to God in Himself because He is the Good Shepherd and He lays down His life for the sheep. He will gather His sheep. He will get rid of whatever it is that keeps them from coming to the Father. The only way to God is through faith in Christ. And Jesus said it, I am the way. Not a way. The way. The truth. And the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only in Christ the Good Shepherd. And if you will repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you'll be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. And you you will begin a life of the process of being made into the image of God that will end in glorification in heaven, but that takes persecution and preparation. So count the cost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.